I still don't understand what we're supposed to be seeing in terms of the people that have that they've switched over to at the end of that scene. But I'm sure we'll get there. I'm sure you all will educate me. I was looking to talk about that for yeah, between 45 and 75 minutes, just about that last scene. So <laughs> that's right. Okay, so that's not. Well, that's while not you do that, I will sweep up. I have some sweep. <laughs> <laughs> and it will take me about 45 minutes. Exactly. I think we're ready to start Wrapped in Podcast Episode 7. We got a lot to talk about this week. It was definitely a big episode, an exciting episode. There's some exciting things that happened, but it's also kind of a somber time and a time that I want to take to reflect. Uh, the show was broadcast on Father's Day, and you know the show itself, the actual makers of the show, dedicated the show to Warren Frost, um, who is the, the late Warren Frost, who is Mark Frost's father, who played the character of Doc Hayward, who actually made an appearance in the episode, uh, and that really touched me. And accordingly, you know, as for this episode seven of Wrapped in Podcast, I want to dedicate this show to America's greatest dad, friend of the show, Balthazar Getty. Um, <laughs> He's got four young kids, uh, and every day he's showing up for them after 11 a.m. Like Carl Rod. Uh, right, that's right. And who, who among us has not had trouble in our marriage, you know, not really sure where things were going to go, but did we have the courage to have an affair with Sienna Miller to save our marriage? Um, <laughs> Balthazar Getty, again, um, Dad of the year and the the person to whom I'm ready to uh, to dedicate the show to. Does anybody anybody have any thoughts about the spiritual father of our podcast, Balthazar Getty? Only that there is zero chance that I will tag him in the tweet about this week's episode. No, you must. You yeah, must. no, you absolutely must. You must. Odds he will actually listen and hear that. Or <laughs> I, I feel like you, if you show any fear, you will be utterly <laughs> obliterated. <laughs> If you show any fear in tagging Balthazar Getty on Twitter, you will be utterly eliminated. By uh, by the Black Lodge or by DJ Black Lodge, which I assume is Getty's DJ name when he's uh, playing parties out in the desert. So, Ken, is there anything more you wanted to say about Balthazar Getty and his uh, special connection to our show? Uh, just that we love him. Uh, we're very, very fond of Balthazar Getty in these parts. Um, those of us who live within motorcycling distance of him uh, feel very respectful towards him and want in no way to make him upset. Uh, it's wonderful that he retweeted a link to our last episode, and we look forward to all the new followers that we're getting. Um, all the people who went on Balthazar Getty's feed to call him dad and wish him a happy Father's Day because they really, really <laughs> like him on Twitter. 
there, uh, welcome. Uh, this is Rafton Podcast, and we're happy to have you here. Thanks so much for tuning in. We talk about Twin Peaks on this podcast, and uh, your your boy Balthazar is a big, big part of that. So thanks so much for tuning in. And he's doing a good job in in the return. I I, I like I like I think Red is creepy and well acted by Balthazar Getty so far, right? Did you all just find dimes in your mouth, or is that just me? Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's right. Um, the mat, the magic, the the, the sorcery of, of Balthazar reaches uh, beyond time and space. So, at, you know, I want to get serious. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about. I, I want to start with a little bit of humor. Uh, I really do want to dedicate the show to America's greatest dad, or certainly America's most prolific dad, uh, and that would be Bad Coop, who. Yes. Kyle will later explain is in fact sired every single character in the show under the age of 30. Yes, that's exactly right. According to his uh, theories. And we'll get to that later. Um, you know, the, in, in episode seven, I, I just want to jump right in. Jerry Horn is freaked out. He's really freaked out. You know, I thought that there was like somebody hunting him. Turns out he's really high uh, and he's lost his car. And I was thinking about this, like for Jerry Horn to be really high is something. Because dude's going to have a tolerance. So whatever he's on must be really, really powerful. I didn't, I've got one more insight from this scene, but I'm going to let the rest of you comment on it. The, the one thing that I want to say about this scene is I hadn't noticed it before, but old Ben Horn now looks disturbingly like old David Letterman. Yeah, he really does. Yeah, that's- He really does. I was going to say, Jerry Horn kind of looks like post-retirement David Letterman. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's true. Whoa. The two horns. That's that's a good point. Whoa. That's true. Yeah. One one has hair. Um and but Ben's got those like weird kind of ghoulish lips. Yeah. Uh that that are that are kind of tricky. Here's the thing that occurred to me in terms of like Jerry Horn being lost in the woods. According to the secret history, Jerry Horn is a member of the Bookhouse Boys. Oh. And this is maybe a matter of some controversy, but the book uh, the Secret History includes an excerpt from a book by Richard Jacoby. It's called like a long, you know, tangled web or something like that. And there's a section on the Bookhouse Boys talks about how the Bookhouse Boys uh, were originally founded by the father of Franklin and Harry Truman, uh, who was the sheriff, uh, and that perhaps the the Bookhouse Boys' greatest triumph, and this is odd, was their winning uh, football team as the uh, starting lineup of the Twin Peaks High School Lumberjacks. And there's a picture of a plaque that shows the seven-man starting lineup, which includes Jerry Horn, who I think it was a kicker. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's really remarkable. Like, what does that even mean? Because uh, we know that he wasn't subsequently kicked out of the Bookhouse Boys like Hank was. Uh, but his status as a bookhouse boy, you know, goes pretty much, you know, unmentioned. Uh, Harry Truman didn't really seem to like Jerry much from the scenes that they shared in, I think, season two, uh, maybe season one. So anyway, when it seen Jerry lost in the woods, it made me think about the fact that he, he is, in fact, a bookhouse boy. It is a nice little bit of misdirection, too, that he's terrified, and it turns out that he's only terrified because he's really high, since that kind of terror is the default mode for so many of the characters now in this version of Twin Peaks. It seems like 80% of the scenes, we start on somebody who is just trembling with intense fear, usually justifiably. Yeah, that's right. 
and you know we we jump from this scene to uh, a really you know remarkable scene this is uh the kind of scene we we've never seen in this sh- show this this part of the show but which was you know so evocative of the first two seasons and it's hawk going over with sheriff frank truman the three pages from the diary that were found in the door um you know and as we talked about weeks ago it 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 is the direct message from Annie Blackburn to Laura that she recorded in her diary. They talked about the fact that Laura had this dream and wrote it down in her diary before, you know, she ever would have seen Cooper or even Annie Blackburn, you know, and uh, Kyle, I think you pointed out that it's almost like they're at the opposite end of the conference room table where Coop was interrogating Dr. Jacoby in season one. Yeah, there's that scene where you've got Dr. Jacoby at one end of the table. If I remember right, doing this faux magic trick where he's, you know, making the ping pong ball ball come out of his mouth and Cooper's at the other end. And it's almost like they're shooting this scene from where Cooper was sitting, which I thought was, was a nice touch. And, and although they, they kind of hold your hand a little bit more than they, uh, typically do in a Lynch Frost production. Uh, I, I did like the way it laid out. They explained everything. Uh, they, they made good use of Frank Truman and the fact that he wasn't there, uh, in the first two seasons and that he kind of needed to get caught up to speed. Uh, as a story conceit, I thought that worked pretty well. And, and I particularly like the fact that Hawk specifically mentioned Annie Blackburn because there's been a theory going around ever since the secret history in which Annie wasn't mentioned, where a lot of people were theorizing that Annie didn't really exist, that she was just this doppelganger, was manufactured for a purpose or whatever it was, that uh, that she wasn't really real. She was just there to lure Dale into the Black Lodge. And so I'm, I'm glad that we've at least got confirmation that Annie Blackburn was, in fact, a living human being. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I had predicted in when we saw the uh, scene where Hawk tears open the bathroom stall that how the pages got there were that Mike, who we had seen in apparently that bathroom stall previously, having some sort of chemical episode, uh, put the papers there. We knew that he would have access to the papers because he was at uh, the train car the, where Leland had taken Laura and, and where he had had the papers. Um, and that, you know, somehow, some way, Mike had left them as a clue. Hawk here offers an alternative explanation which is that Leland was the one who put those papers there. Uh, maybe he, when he came in to get interviewed about the murder of Jacques Renault, he was worried he was going to get frisk. You know, and, and that is, I would say, maybe a simpler and more straightforward explanation than mine. Although we have, the, you know, my explanation has the benefit of, you know, the forensic proof we saw Mike in that exact stall. Uh, it make, we really can't, kind of figure out what Mike's motivations there would be. Whereas it would make more sense for Leland to put those papers there either because he didn't want them to get caught or out of his desire to get caught at some point in the future. Um, yeah. yeah. So anyway, that, that was kind of my take on it. And both the kind of pieces of information we get in this scene, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the Annie Blackburn uh, and what she told Laura kind of in her dream as well as uh, the fact that it, it makes Leland out to be the one who you know took the pages and then hid them there. 
both again, I think reiterate the importance of, I guess, fire walk with me, um, to, you know, the continuing kind of mythology of, of twin peaks to return, uh, because both those things were, you know, from that film. Cause I guess it would make sense that, you know, you see early on, I think in fire walk with me, when we start the kind of Laura Palmer sequence after the, you know, long 30 minute, uh, deer meadow sequence, which may or may not be agent Cooper's dream. Uh, but I think she, you know, looks at her diary, you know, realizes the pages have been torn. And I think it's the same bedroom, one of those daytime scenes in which we see, you know, she realizes she sees her, her you know, father coming in, has a vision of Bob kind of tearing the, the pages out. So yeah, just again, the importance of, I guess, fire walk with me and to a lesser extent, the missing pieces. Um, it seems to be, you know, more important to Lynch than a big wide swath of the rest of season two. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that we kind of close out the scene with after Hawk makes the conclusion that the coop that came out of the lodge with Annie is not the good Cooper. And then Truman, uh, Sheriff Truman, Frank wants to call up Harry, calls him, but apparently his, his tests are bad, medical tests are bad. He's been moved to do a new location. I thought maybe it could be hospice, but probably not because – uh, at the end of the call, you know, Frank says, beat this thing. Um, a pretty emotional moment. Yeah. And, and the thing that that made me think of, of course, one of the, the, uh, defining moments of season one was, uh, Laura Palmer's funeral and it, it had everybody there together in one scene. And of course, things went pretty haywire. And, and I'm just wondering, are, are we going to have Harry Truman's death? We know Michael Ankeen is not back for the season. Uh, but, is it possible that Harry Truman is going to decline and ultimately die over the course of this season? And if so, are we going to see, uh, you know, episode 16 or 17, somewhere in there, some sort of gathering of all the Twin Peaks characters at Harry's funeral? And potentially, do we have the two Coopers coming together at that moment? Uh, I don't want Harry Truman to die, obviously, but since he's going to be off screen anyway, that may be uh, that may be a, something that we're pointing toward in the course of the story. Yeah, I I like that idea, and it occurs to me that because maybe of the changes in the sound design, and especially in the music from Badalamenti to uh, Lynch's atmospheric score, that we maybe lose sight of how much there are still soap opera elements present. It's felt to me like we haven't had any of them, that we've been doing so much Lost Highway and Inland Empire and that sort of thing, that we've had none of the soap opera stuff where old Twin Peaks turned into Invitation to Love or Second Season Twin Peaks, that kind of thing. And, you know, here we have a character where the actor is not available. So we're getting the uh, very sentimentally treated story of his illness and decline via phone calls, which seems like a, a soap opera kind of a technique. We've got all of this doubling, which inevitably reminds me of like Adam and Stuart Chandler on All My Children and is definitely, definitely a soap opera technique. And we've got people speculating all over the internet and elsewhere about whether there's a love child of Bad Cooper and Audrey Horn, if there was somebody who was violated when she was in a coma and and awakened pregnant, that sort of thing, uh, all of which are very, very soap opera tropes. So just because we come into every scene with somebody terrified and shaking in fear, and just because we have all of this moody music and atmospheric sound design doesn't mean that we've lost all that stuff, uh, I guess. And it hadn't really occurred to me until just now. Speaking of fear, in the next series of scenes, I was really, really worried that Andy was going to get his head blown off. Yeah. Um, 
he he goes to interview a, a character that's credited as farmer about the truck that's Richard Horn's truck, which uh, the guy, this farmer guy swears it's not his, but he wants to talk to him at a different location. Um, and, you know, Andy, I guess, is not the kind of cop who says, okay, I'm taking you in and we're going to talk about this at the station. Uh, instead, he says that we're going to, he wants to meet him at Sparkwood in 21 in two hours. And, you know, one thing that I did think of, and this goes to your point, Kyle, that you think that Jerry Horn could be the father of Richard Horn is that we know that Jerry Horn is, is missing his, his car or his vehicle. Right. Yeah. And I had thought about that. And it's interesting because this scene is actually a pretty short scene. Not a whole lot happens in it, but there really is a lot to unpack there. Uh, as you'd mentioned about Jerry Horn has reported his vehicle was stolen. And of course, uh, we find out later that, uh, you know, Dougie's car was finally reported as stolen in the very same episode. So we got a lot of stolen vehicles, not necessarily connected to one another, but it is, it is interesting. Uh, the, the other thing I thought of, of course, was the last time we had uh, specifically a truck stolen on Twin Peaks, and it was a major plot point, was when Wyndham Earl, who was dressed up as the log lady, stole Pete Martell's truck after the Miss Twin Peaks pageant and headed off into the woods with Annie Blackburn, which is what caused Agent Cooper to pursue them and ultimately go into the Black Lodge. So uh, we do we do have some callbacks there. Uh, and then the other thing is the plans for them to meet later. You know, they're, they're obviously meeting near Sparkwood in 21, which is which is important for so many reasons. You got the traffic lights, you got Laura jumping off of James's bike the night she died, you got some of the events in the secret history. We've obviously got two uh, important traffic accidents occurring there between uh, Leland and Mike uh, and between Richard and the boy last week. Uh, and he says it's just past Jones's, uh, which is interesting because obviously we, we've got a new character here, Dougie Jones. Uh, and then finally, he's meeting at 4.30 and as the giant or the artist formerly known as the giant told us we have to remember 430 so there's a lot of pieces coming together in this one meeting and in this one scene and note that we come into this scene on the character described as farmer credited as farmer and of course he's trembling and terrified so take a drink or whatever uh we we haven't yet talked um despite my desire to do it basically every week we haven't yet talked about lynch's career making traffic safety videos he was really obsessed with traffic safety for a while and traffic safety videos which uh is certainly evident from what we've seen with the horrific traffic accidents in this show and of course the uh the focus on traffic lights and maybe one of my favorite you know uh bits of attention paid to traffic safety and cinematic history is the tailgating scene uh in lost highway in which robert Loja oh yeah <laughs> runs someone off the roof right tailgating him and then beats them to yeah. a bloody pulp while giving them <laughs> lessons about how many car links you should stay behind another one i think that should should be shown in schools across america uh, in driving schools so yeah yeah no and, and the farmer was he was really wigged out he's he is clearly terrified of someone or something you know possibly in his house um just, apparently that's why he can't meet with andy and we go back to the sheriff statement uh, sheriff station. Sheriff Truman has the world's coolest desk. Uh, he calls up Doc Hayward uh, and asks, uh, you know, tells him about Harry's health, and then asks for his Skype handle. You, I think there's been a series of product placement in this show, and that just continues with the Skype business. Um, I guess they had to get that funding from somewhere for Lynch to direct every episode. 
I also did read, though, didn't Lynch and Frost do a lot of the kind of writing uh, of the script? That's right. That's right. They did. Skype? They did. That's what I they did. I they, read it somewhere they, in some articles. That was ah. the kind of method is they would get up on Skype every day because Frost lives somewhere up north of, I want to say, Alaska or like northern California. And Lynch is in Los Angeles. And so that's how they would write is, is on Skype. Yeah, so so we get the scene. It is it is kind of a touching scene because Doc Hayward is played by uh, Mark Frost's father, and you know he has passed away. And he's definitely old, but he's he's been out fishing, and they kind of talk. And Harry asks him about you know the day that Cooper came out of the Black Lodge, and and he checked on him at the Great Northern. Doc definitely remembers that and said that he he took Coop to the hospital and i thought he took the he was taking coop to the hospital because he had like a head injury from hitting the the mirror right but apparently doc's memory is that he may have been there to check on audrey who was in a coma uh, and then he was gone for about a year or, or not a year but a, but a, a an hour and doc saw coop leaving the hospital and just gave him this kind of blank evil look and walked away and so of course uh, you know, this kind of can, may confirm the theory that we've had that Coop is the father of Richard Horn, that, that Coop raped Audrey. Now we know that he may have raped her while she was comatose, uh, cause bad Coop is really, really bad. Unfortunately, we never got to figure out what happened, uh, between <laughs> Doc and Ben Horn, who, you know, when you last saw them in the same room, uh, ben Horn was seriously messed up by Doc, uh, but he appears to have recovered. I don't know if we're ever going to get to talk to talk to Doc about that again. Yeah, talk about a soap opera scene. That was astonishing. So, I mean, Doc Hayward just on the ground. Uh, I mean, it was bellowing. like something out of yeah, Bad Lieutenant. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. No, yeah. Or like, you know. Because I'm eager to talk about literally anything other than uh, the rape of an unconscious Audrey Horn, which was is going to cause cause me to quit this podcast and the show forever if it turns out to be true. Um, what do we think of all the technology in the sheriff's office? It's weird that it's much much bigger than it used to be and really kitted out. Like the switchboard that the one character sits at when Chad is being fucking Chad is extremely ornate and. Um, uh, fancy looking it looks like they're running some sort of fbi sting operation out of the back room like there's just a ton of tech in the sheriff's office and now we have this sheriff truman having this awesome little piece of um built-in uh dis- this built-in display in his desk right i think they're getting um surplus military intelligence equipment from the department of homeland security oh, there you go. right i mean well you know it's funny because i was thinking about that and there have been a couple references in the show to the war and, you know, we're thinking about 2017 versus 1990. In 1990, there weren't any kids that went to war and came back messed up. Uh, that just wasn't generationally something that was going on. But it is something that is pretty far in the background, but there were a couple references to it. I mean, I'm going pretty far afield to say that's why there's so much tech in the sheriff's office. But it is the case that in the post, you know, Iraq war era we have local police stations getting you know high-grade military equipment that they don't need um and maybe we're seeing maybe major briggs cut a deal yeah 
that's that's uh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, and Jr. Unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to buy this theory any more than Ken does, but I, I do think that you're probably right. Uh, I do like how this episode did a good job of filling in some of the blanks on the intervening 25 years uh, from the season two finale to the premiere of season three. But uh, unfortunately, I don't think there's any other reason that Doc Hayward would would present that particular piece of information that he thought he was in ICU visiting Audrey, who was unconscious after the disastrous end of, of her Occupy Twin Peaks movement. Uh, I don't think there's any other way to, to read that detail being included other than that. Uh, Bad Coop went in and uh, and impregnated Audrey uh, while she was comatose. And and think about, uh, I mean, the the implications of that for Bad Cooper show just how truly bad he is. But think about the implications from the other side. Audrey doesn't know what's happened. When Audrey wakes up and discovers she's pregnant, she assumes that John Justice Wheeler is the father of the baby because she thinks that's the only man with ever with whom she's ever had sexual relations. So this child is born. Richard Horn has the Horn family last name, doesn't bear John Justice Wheeler's last name. So I'm wondering, did she extract a payoff from Wheeler to keep it quiet? And does that strengthen the theory that's been going around that Audrey may in fact be the billionaire behind the glass box research. Billion dollars is quite a payoff. Well, I mean, he's got the money and, and we don't know, you know, that's just what, that's what uh, Sam told Tracy. He doesn't know who the guy is or who the person is. He doesn't know how much money they have. Billionaire just sounded good. He was trying to impress the coffee girl. Of course. Yeah, no, I think that's, that, that you're, that's a good point. Right. And not to, not to lawyer this at you, Kyle, but the only reason that's the Occam's Razor explanation for Coop's visit to the ICU is because we have this character with the last name Horn, right? If if we don't believe, for whatever reason, that Richard Horn is Audrey Horn's son, that he's Ben Horn's son with one of his many mistresses or something else, or that he's Jerry Horn's son, as we discussed, then you could think of any number of reasons why they might be putting in this detail about bad Coop going to visit Audrey in the ICU. He could have been up to no good in a hundred different ways, but we don't have to leap all the way to rape and impregnating her unless we really want to think that this horn is Audrey Horn's son. Well, I don't want to think that, but I'm I'm waiting for the alternative explanation, and I'm I'm begging you to give me one that I believe because I'd much rather believe it. I'm begging Lynch and Frost to give us one. I I just want the show to choose (laughs) any other path. (laughs) I was really, really resistant to Richard Horn being Audrey's uh, son, but I, in you know, I thought it would be, I thought he would be Jerry's or Ben's more likely. I was resistant to this, but I think after this episode, I think you guys are probably right. Sadly enough, I'd also like to just kind of make just praise, I guess, the sort of you know deep grounded soulfulness of uh, Robert Forster and how well he plays all these scenes, uh, especially the ones with on the phone, you know, with uh, his brother, as well as uh, this kind of Skype call here, just a terrific, uh, great performance by him. I can't imagine anyone doing these scenes better and like kind of, uh, you know, give them more, uh, any more pathos. Yeah. I mean, not to be too inside baseball, but Kyle put together our responses to a survey of people who do podcasts about this program. And we kicked around ideas for our favorite new character. And we had a bunch of different people that we were considering. And we never thought to mention Forrester as Sheriff Truman until after Kyle submitted the answers. And then I was like, wait, all of our favorite character is the new Sheriff Truman, I think. And the reason I think we didn't 
think to mention him is because he seems so natural in the part because he has that connection right, to the series, yeah, just, right? Right. Yeah, right. that they right. considered casting him. Lynch wanted him originally, and he wasn't available, and whatever else. And he's just so naturally there that we put him in this place with Hawk and Andy and everybody else. Like, oh yeah, he's part of old Twin Peaks. Yeah. He's not Amanda Seyfried right. or uh, Balthazar Getty or any of the new characters. It's cool. Right. No, he he's really integrated into the show seamlessly. Uh, and it fits with the background that was sort of put into the secret history, which is that he was sheriff before Harry. He's Harry's older brother. Uh, and so he's got, you know, he was a bookhouse boy. He's got a sort of deeper connection to this show than, you know, any new character that they could bring on. And, you know, and he's doing a great job. And I was afraid that, you know, uh, they were going to play it like, he was going to be like, so what's the Black Lodge, you know, and sort of the stereotypical character in like a science fiction or a horror film who's resistant to the supernatural occurrences. But just how matter of fact he, play, he played it. And as you said, those the secret history does make him a bookhouse boy. So he's probably familiar uh, to some extent with um, the stories about what's in the woods in Twin Peaks. Yeah, and he can't be too resistant. His wife married David Bowie in The Man Who Fell to Earth. So he's... Yeah, really. That's right. That's right. Well, we're back to uh, Buckhorn, where Lieutenant Knox, who looks exactly like Scully in a military uniform, uh, meets with Detective Mackley about the Major Briggs prints. And, uh, you know, she wants to know where where the copy of the prints are. And, you know, the detective's like, well, I can do better than that. I give you some fingers. Um, And she's just shocked to find out that there's a body. Uh, a body that it turns out to be uh, of a man in his uh, late forties, um, which and, and basically by all accounts is Major Briggs, except for the fact that Major Briggs should be in his seventies. So yeah, she calls uh, her commanding officer to give her the news, and now he's got to make that other call, presumably to the FBI. Right. Yeah, he had mentioned that before that uh, when he first dispatched her to Buckhorn that they would have to bring in the FBI if it panned out. Uh, I don't think it's coincidental that our next scene shift takes us to Gordon Cole's office and and uh, we don't actually see him make the call, but I think we know who he's going to call. Right. And then we see as she's talking on the phone, this uh, inky blackface character with bug eyes that we've already seen in the cell next to Bill Hastings or one cell down from Bill Hastings uh, in the first episode, the real creepy guy who kind of disappeared and his face floated up into this ether. Um, now he's just walking around the morgue uh, and this it, it, both when she's on the phone and then when she's in talking to Constance and detective Mackley uh, about uh, the body and that this probably won't be Buckhorn's investigation for long. The shape walks past uh, there, and that recalled for me um, Mike, who we remember uh, the one-armed man would uh, kind of wander around to his own tune uh, in the morgue uh, back in the original series. I'll just say I've been very negative about this series in lots of ways and at lots of points, uh, and I probably don't need to remind people of that. But uh, I do like this mystery of the headless body of Major Briggs a lot more than I like some of the mysteries that this show has trotted out as its core mysteries we're supposed to care about post Laura Palmer. Like, I would take this investigation over a lot of the Wyndham Earl stuff, for example. Yeah, sure. 
The other thing about this scene is it's one of several scenes in this episode where, even though this is generally a much more upbeat and positive episode, certainly than the one before it, um, just this ominous undercurrent of, uh, I hesitate even to call it music, but you know, you, you'll get a moment of just this noise in the background that tells you, okay, you need to be on edge here. And certainly when this shadowy black figure appears uh, blurred in the distance when she's on the phone, that that noise sort of comes up uh, and really puts you on edge. And, and the David Lynch sound design there, I think, is doing exactly what it's intended to do. Do you guys have any theories about, you know, what's been happening with um, all these appearances of Major Briggs' fingerprints, I guess, um, over the years? Do you guys think it was something along the lines of, you know, uh, Dougie Jones uh, being manufactured for a purpose? And there was, you know, some way, I guess, in just almost, you know, as, uh, you know, bad coop getting back at, you know, Major Briggs in some way just as this kind of evil prank using his fingerprints again and again how do you how do you guys think this is using i think it's almost like a series of of doppelgangers or something that he's been using or manufacturing perhaps in the same way that he manufactured dougie jones do you guys have any thoughts yeah i don't know i mean i i do recall that uh major briggs uh, has been displaced or unstuck in time before yeah um you know where he where he uh reappeared in like you know world war one era uh air force garb um, in, in the original series. And so I wonder if he has been popping in and out of time and space and appearing here and there for whatever reason, leaving fingerprints. But this latest trip, uh, resulted him in him losing his head and having Janie E's, uh, ring somehow in his stomach. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that would be the explanation for his, the age of right. the body. Right. Um, uh, I, I, I'm less inclined to think it's a doppelganger, but Hey, sure. It could be a doppelganger yeah. or, you know, um, somebody manufactured for a purpose of so that really was very specific right. when you think about it. Like he, he needed a copy of, of coop for a very specific reason why he would need a copy of, uh, major Briggs. I, I, I can't imagine, but yeah, I, I think it'll have something to do with his being unstuck in time. Uh, and I think that his appearance, his head's appearance at the space box scene, um, saying blue rose is, is obviously not a coincidence. It, it is interesting that the, the thing that was noteworthy to me, JR, and you touched on it is the fact that this Major Briggs body is approximately the same age that Major Briggs was when he supposedly died in the fire, uh, at the, the lookout post at around the time of the end of season two. And that, that I, I find it hard to believe that that's coincidental. They could have made him any age in between those two points if they wanted to throw the age off, but he happens to be the age he would have been when we think that he died. Right. Yeah. There- there is an argument here, too, that I've been meaning to vocalize when we talk about things like how all of this is going to add up. And I want to be careful how I express it because I don't want to be overly negative or suggest that what we're doing is sort of pointless because I think this is only one aspect of our endeavor here. But there is an idea that maybe none of this is connected, that there actually isn't ever going to be a resolution to, for example, this mystery, that Lynch personally resented having to tie up the Laura Palmer mystery and would have happily gone on never tying it up forever. And so in full control now, with Frost of this endeavor, that he might decide that that's what he's actually going to do. And that there's nice little 
um, Easter eggs for those of us who've paid a ton of attention and nerded out over Lynch over the years and read The Secret History and all of that stuff. And there's clues being dropped because he likes dropping clues, but that there isn't going to be anything like an explanation for why Janie E's ring is in the DH body of Major Briggs with someone else's head on it by episode 18. I just, I want to put it out there because I think it's important somebody articulate it. I'm not sure that I'm, that I think that's what's going on with the show. And I'm not sure it's a bad thing if it is, but I want to make sure that we we have it out there. So 25 years from now, we're going to be doing season four with 83-year-old Kyle McLaughlin. That's what you're telling me. Listen, I'm up for it. If Kyle's up for it, <laughs> I, I don't yeah, think yeah, Lynch sure, and no. his coffee and cigarettes habit are going to last that long, but 125-year-old Lynch doesn't seem very likely. But <laughs> Well, you know, I've also heard the theory that this, that, that Major Briggs's body was put into some sort of chirogenic freeze and bad coop cut off his head. Um, that seems unlikely, uh, but it would be a, an alternative explanation for his age. Um, I like your unstuck in time theory better, JR. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Um, so, and, and unfortunately I was really hoping we'd get a call to the FBI, uh, whether it's to Denise or Gordon and in getting, uh, the Air Force teamed up with the FBI. Unfortunately, uh, that's not what we get. Uh, what we do get is is Gordon whistling uh, a bird call or something. Not not really sure what the melody was. Uh, with an ear of corn uh, painting on the wall, and uh, <clears throat> Albert comes into Gordon's room, uh, tells him it did not go well with Diane. Uh, that Albert knew he was there about Cooper and her, what, what she said in response was no fucking way. And so Albert, or Gordon says he'll go this time, but he, he needs Albert to come with him. And so uh, that's yeah, probably for the first time ever in the series, we go from one scene to the next scene consequential, you know, there's a, we go directly from one scene to the next scene. Uh, Albert and Gordon talk about going to visit Diane and then they go visit Diane. Um, <clears throat> and we have this uh this the scene in her apartment uh where uh Diane is you know she has about the same enthusiasm for the FBI as the head of a major organized crime family uh she really really does not like the FBI does not like Gordon uh when she finds out that Kyle or that Kyle C- Coop is in is in prison federal lockup the first thing she says is good. I mean, there's a lot of history here. Um, it's a very interesting scene. I, you know, th- there's a guy in the apartment um, who uh, yeah, seems to be very affectionate towards Diane. Uh, and he jets as soon as Albert and uh, Gordon come in. Uh, Kyle, you have some thoughts on, on this uh, gentleman caller. Uh, yes, I do. And I, I want to delve into them before I start thinking too hard about the ear of corn picture on the wall, because I'm going, going back and forth on whether that's a blue velvet homage or whether that is uncreamed Garmin Bosia. But anyway, why not a straight uh, yeah, story I, homage? Right. There you go. OK. Uh, he just has interesting taste in wall hangings. That's that's all I'm going to say there. Uh, yeah. My, my theory and I, I admit that it's a little creepy, but my my thinking is if you know, if you're going to do this, you might as well double down and, and go all in. So this is going to be the special Father's Day edition of Kyle's Conspiracy Corner, although it's not uh, 70s related. Uh, we've got the guy at Diane's apartment. He's a lot younger than her. 
uh, he's, I believe, the one credited as younger man in the closing credits. And and I'll admit, I've had a problem with confusing uh, similarly looking characters who've just been introduced in this series with 217 members of the cast. Uh, and when I first saw him, I initially mistook him for Richard Horn, which seemed really odd. Uh, but here's my thought. We get some indication later on that things have happened that went really, really badly between Evil Cooper and Diane, uh, whether it was consensual or not, there seems to be some suggestion that, uh, that the two of them have had a, a tryst or, or, uh, may have been an, a sexual assault. And, and I'm thinking if, if Bad Coop is going around, you know, if he's, if, if he's impregnated Audrey Horn in a rape, why not believe that he just went on a spree across the country and went after every woman that Cooper had any uh, connection with, you know, went after Diane. Maybe it's the guy in Diane's apartment. Maybe it's not, but you know, maybe there's a guy uh, who's Diane's illegitimate son by, uh, by bad coop. And, and as you mentioned before, uh, you know, why not make everybody in this series who's evil be evil Cooper's illegitimate son? You know, uh, if, say that Ray, you know, he took advantage of Beulah, who warned him that it was a world of truck drivers. And sure enough, Richard Horn turned out to be a truck driver. You know, why not uh, it be the case that uh, that Chad, you know, we don't like Chad. Why don't we blame Chad on evil Cooper? You know, why would why would Red uh, not be the illegitimate son of evil Cooper? He, it would explain the magic. And, you know, we've got that last scene in the season two finale where he asked about Annie. Uh, and then we find out Annie was in the hospital. She'd have been there the same time that Doppel Cooper uh, went there after the mirror smashing. So we can't rule out the possibility that he attacked her too. So at this point, if we got to buy that uh, Doppel Cooper is impregnating Audrey Horn, Bob talked about his children. Bob's still with him. Maybe he's strewing illegitimate children all over the place. Well, first of all, one reason not to do that is because my wife would never watch the show again. If if all this is, is 25 years later, the consequences of a series of brutal rapes, I think that she is all the way out on ever watching this program again. But yeah, but th- you bring up a really good point that I meant to mention back when we were talking about reasons for Coop to be in the ICU. If Annie Blackburn was there in the ICU. It, it could be diversion, having Doc Hayward say that uh, Bad Coop was there to visit Audrey. He might have thought he was there to visit Audrey, because he knew of the connection between Good Coop and Audrey, but Bad Coop might have actually had something to do with Annie Blackburn. So, there's also that. Right, and you know, this I think there's a larger point here for me, which is that while Coop and Albert were, or not Coop, Gordon and Albert were obviously very surprised and interested when they heard when Coop emerges in this federal prison in South Dakota, but nothing has been said about their understanding of the timeline of what happened when he came out of the black lodge, when we last saw him in the show, it, we, we only know from, from Bobby apparently that Coop visit and from the secret history that, that Coop visited um, major Briggs shortly after coming out of the Black Lodge, but why doesn't the flipping FBI have any clue as to what happened to their agent uh, after he appeared at the, at the end of that episode? If he's going to Philadelphia and meeting up with his former secretary, wouldn't there be a note in the file, maybe? Uh, w- would there be some attempt to, A, find him 
and B, you know, account for his disappearance. But they never, uh, it, it, they it, never found Philip ahead. Jeffries. They never found Chester Desmond. I mean, everybody out of that office is gradually disappearing. I don't. I, I, it makes sense to me that Albert and Gordon are just clinging together for survival, thinking that they're the next ones to be voted off the island. Yeah, no, I mean that's yeah, that, that's a that's a very fair point. Uh, it just it just seems weird to yeah. me that the the people of Twin Peaks know more about Cooper's activity. Uh, after coming out of the Black Lodge, than the FBI yeah, fair does. Enough. See, so uh, again, we go uh, in a direct narrative, uh, linear fashion from this scene in Diane's apartment to the next scene that happens in that course uh, of the story, which is they're on a private jet. Um, I, it's it's a little weird for the FBI, you know, mid level FBI uh, people to be flying around in private aircraft. I don't think that happens in real life. But uh, yeah, we've got this scene, and you know, Diane is is really unhappy. Albert offers her some uh, vodka, which she downs, um, and <clears throat> Tamara Preston's on the plane. Uh, she points out these irregularities in the coup prints that you accurately predicted, Kyle. Although it turns out that the irregularities don't appear right. to be in the patterns of the of the fingerprints themselves. It looks like somebody reversed uh, a word, reversed one of the prints to make them match up, uh, but it didn't quite work. Uh, and there's a word that's backwards uh, instead of very. It's it's weirif. And something that I've subsequently found out. Uh, that I, I happen to have missed in the scene where bad coop is originally interrogated by Gordon. He says, uh, I'm Yeriv very happy to see you. Uh, he actually reverses the word very. Uh, so clearly that's what's going on here. Well, then, well, then Colt sort of, you know, uh, compliments, uh, I guess, Tammy on her work. And then he does a really interesting thing. He counts out what Cooper's bad Cooper Cooper Ganger said to him, I'm very, very happy to see you again, old friend, on the, the, the you know, whatever, 10 words on Tammy's fingers, and then points out, looks like, left ring finger? Uh, is that what you guys could say? It identifies as the spiritual finger, right. and then I think the spiritual mound says you think about that, Tammy, and I've done a little bit of research into palmistry here. Uh, and I think we should call, if we don't call this episode Uncreamed Garmin Bozia, we should call it The Spiritual Mound. Um, just my suggestions. <laughs> and uh, I think he's referring to, if it's the, you know, the the mound, uh, you know, right below your ring finger, left ring finger, or e- maybe either ring finger, this is the Apollo Mound. Uh, and just some things I found from uh, uh, some, some research online. Uh, Apollo, the Roman god of the sun, stands for light, truth, healing, beauty, poetry, and art. The Mount of Apollo, or the Mound of Apollo, is located at the base of the ring finger and is associated with all the positive attributes of uh, of Apollo. If it's of good size, this denotes that the bear is outgoing and enthusiastic, talented and creative, lively and positive. That sounds to me like Agent Dale Cooper. Um, and uh, but I guess if if there's if it's reversed or if it's damaged in some way, um, Gordon understands something. I don't know if we should, but there, there's something. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just confident that Krista Bell, who plays uh, Tamara Preston, is fucking David Lynch in real life. And therefore, I'm very uncomfortable hearing Lynch talk about her spiritual mound so much. I mean, seriously? 
that they're that they're having sex yes i do i think that he has sex with a whole lot of impressionable young artists that he takes under his wing uh your julie cruises and jocelyn montgomery's and what have you and she seems to be the latest in that line he's doing all these music videos for her and shepherding her career and producing records and playing instruments on them and such so yeah i think it's in keeping with his kind of pattern and also she talks to him in a sex kittenish way when she's supposed to be playing a a co-worker of his and it's weird it's an odd way to play that character yeah and and when ken first made that point a few weeks ago i hadn't really read the character that way but <clears throat> having heard it uh now i mean that's clearly the way she's talking to gordon in this scene and and it's really unfortunate because otherwise this is actually a pretty good uh episode for for women having a degree of authority and agency i mean you got uh constance you got cynthia you got janie e uh, you got Beverly to an extent. You've certainly got Diane. Uh, even the the Lucky Seven coworker is at least functional and doesn't interpret Dougie's come hither hand gesture as some sort of come on. So uh, it's unfortunate that she's uh, being the way she is in this particular scene. Uh, but as you mentioned, Jr. Uh, he uses the words that Cooper used earlier uh, that Cooper that Gordon and Albert uh, commented on as being an inappropriate way of greeting him that I like you didn't pick up on, but. Apparently he did, and they did, uh, that it was reversed just like the fingerprints are. Uh, and what's interesting uh, is that it's the, it's the left ring finger, which is, of course, where a wedding ring would go. It is where Dougie wore the owl ring when his left arm went numb right before he went into the Black Lodge. And I'm not sure about this, but, you know, Cooper had a ring that he wore during the original run of the series that the giant took away from him at the beginning of season two and then gave back to him when he discovered who Laura's killer was. I'm not sure if he wore that on his left hand, um, but but there is a ring that has particular resonance with Dale Cooper specifically. Kyle, I'm with you generally on the treatment of women in this episode and them having more to do. Uh, big, big demerits for all of the insinuations of sexual assault, though, and a specific demerit for Diane, who is very cool and interesting otherwise, but then is put in this place where it seems very much like she's being defined by sexual trauma. We don't know yet, but it seems like that's what's happening. Uh, and no credit, no credit at all for sexy Lucky Seven co-worker until that woman has a name and something to do that does not involve pouting or um, rejecting advances or walking into a room for some little scene function. Uh, she gets no points. No points, no credit, demerits to, to Lynch and Fro. <laughs> right. And also, uh, apparently, you know, we, there's they have one photograph of Coop from the past 25 years uh, where he, he is apparently uh, a Miami Vice villain, uh, you know, some sort of Rio-based drug dealer, uh, with this, you know, palatial estate, uh, Albert, what makes what has got to be a joke in terms of uh, saying that it's now owned by a girl from Ipanema. I was going to make a comment that apparently uh, the mansion uh, that uh, the only known photo Agent Cooper that he's walking in front of is apparently Al Capone's uh, waterfront mansion in uh, Florida. <laughs> so, and I think if you. Yes. So I think it's, uh, I'll give credit to this. I think the Welcome to Twin Peaks website, uh, welcome to twinpeaks.com came up with this. But apparently, um, if you Google image search gangster house palm trees, you'll come up with the same image. And there was just some crude <laughs> photoshopping done. 
So, uh, and then uh, my favorite, uh, this is probably the most meme-worthy image, uh, I think, from uh, Episode 7. And my favorite version of it was the Grand Theft yeah. Auto Vice City uh, kind of uh, postcard version of this. So, yeah. I mean... But- but apparently it's Al Capone's waterfront mansion. For That's pretty funny, right? The fact that they just took what comes up when you Google gangster house and palm trees and stuck this photo of him looking like, yeah, like it's he's absurd. in a flock of seagulls or uh, an extra in Miami Vice in front of it. Like, who says this show is humorless? That's that's legit funny. Yeah, so maybe he's the uh, billionaire. Uh, maybe, maybe Bad Coop has had plenty of time to accumulate a massive amount of money. And the Manhattan experiment is Didn't we uh, being funded by him. I'm not sure if yeah. I said that early on. Yeah, I thought I said that, like in one of the earlier episodes, sure. that that Coop was just keeping yeah, you did. a monitor, you know, keeping an eye on all these kind of whatever was coming out of the law. Yeah, we definitely yeah. said something about that. It could be a box meant to ke- keep people out of this reality rather than letting them in. Okay, so yeah, we we go back to the federal prison, uh, and Diane lays out her terms for talking to Bad Coop. Ten minutes, and I speak to him alone. Uh, Cole assures that she controls the, the curtain and the microphone. Diane does not mince words in terms of what she thinks about Tammy, uh, namely, fuck you, Tammy. Yeah. But she asked her her name first so that she can personalize it. That was the beauty of it. It wasn't just her saying it to whoever. She wanted to know who it was so that she could personalize it. I just, you, you get that craftsmanship. I really respect that. Yeah. And there, so the, 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 when the actual curtain goes up, and Diane's in the room with Cooper. Um, it's really rough. It's really creepy. Um, I think Laura Dern's doing a great job. She is clearly a victim of Coop in one way or another. And, you know, Coop is the same, you know, low, totally affectless voice like we've seen exclusively when he's being talked to in this particular context of being interrogated inside of the prison. And, uh, you know, she, she says, I knew it was going to be you. It's good to see you again, Diane. And she immediately asks him, when did they last see each other? And, uh, she says, you know, are you upset with me, Diane? And she says, what do you think? And then she asks him again, where did you last see me? And he says, at your house, which is like, Reminds me so much of yeah. uh, Blake and Lost Highway, yeah. who said, you know, I'm at your house right now, which is like the creepiest, one of the creepiest thing that's happened in any of David Lynch's. I'm there right over now. Right. Exactly. Call me. Yeah. So, yeah. So, that's something really terrible happened between uh, Diane and Coop. And, you know, we're, we're going to go back and forth on it. I, it's really hard for me to grasp that that this was the good coop that could have wronged diane uh it, it if it were the good coop uh nothing in his tapes that he records for her ever suggests that there's anything untoward going on on the other hand at the conclusion of this scene she comes out of the of the prison and tells gordon that that was that that was not coop that there was something fundamentally missing from him and i kind of got the impression that that she was saying that there was something different from him even when she had last seen him. Yeah. But I guess it's a little bit ambiguous. Yeah, I didn't get that impression at first. I, I thought that whatever encounter she'd had was with the bad Coop and that he just, you know, still looked like good Coop. But uh, but you're right, it's it's unclear. Kyle, to some extent, you already hit on this with your conspiracy corner. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I, I really couldn't get 
uh, again, if it was the bad coop that came to Diane, uh, it, I guess it's just kind of disappointing to me that uh, nobody has ever talked about that discreet event having happened at the FBI, which you you know you'd think that if their agent disappeared and then showed up at his secretary's house and raped her, I mean, I could certainly see why Diane wouldn't want to talk about it. But if Diane suddenly quits and is really upset at the same time that Cooper leaves, I can't imagine that, that, that Gordon or Albert or somebody wouldn't have looked into that. Yeah. Except that if, you know, of course she's, she doesn't even want to tell Gordon about it now. And so whatever it was, was something so traumatic that I'm sure she didn't tell anyone then, but you're right. Uh, I mean, she was an employee there uh, who worked for Dale. Dale apparently disappears and then she quits. Uh, yeah. You would think that somebody would have looked into it, particularly since Gordon and Albert weren't just his coworkers. I mean, they, they were friends with him. They cared about him. And, and uh, it does seem that Coop disappeared and the general consensus in the Philadelphia office was, oh, well, these things happen, which admittedly, these things do happen, but you still think they'd want to look into it. Right. I mean, just imagine the water cooler talk. Oh, have you heard anything about Coop? Nope, nothing. Nope. He just kind of disappeared. I haven't heard right. of him. And then Diane hears that. She's like, actually, he was at my house and raped me last <laughs> week. Uh, like, why don't you go find him and punish him? I mean, I don't. again, I'm not trying in any way to speak for what she as a victim would have wanted to do, but it... It's it's kind of hard for me to piece together. I just like the idea that the water cooler conversation at the FBI is, well, this FBI just loses agents all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was also going to say that um, when Diane is questioning Bad Coop here, her question of sort of who are you uh, seems to echo things that weird scene in Fire Walk With Me when Laura's kind of, it looks like under the fan and there's just light, light flashing on her face. It seems like she's talking to Bob or some, and then, you know, who are you? Uh, and I think it's like in the film just before I think she finds out, you know, uh, that, that Leland, you know, that Bob and Leland are, are more or less the same, but I thought that that, that was interesting. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. And then the conclusion of the conversation is, uh, Diane tells him that he needs to look at her and, you know, she kind of looks into his, you know, black soulless eyes and panics and closes the court curtain and that's it. They're all, they're going out and Gordon tells the warden uh, to, to hold him until he hears from him or hears from the FBI. And so, you know, they're, they're kind of getting into their cars, leaving the prison and, you know, I think it doesn't kind of look like the same parking lot where subsequently we see uh, the bad coop escaping. I think so. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And, and so it's an interesting kind of callback later in the, in the episode. And, uh, you know, I already mentioned, you know, she says that she there's definitely something that's not there. And, uh, you know, that's enough for Cole. I mean, he's 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 convinced now that this is not the good coop. Uh, it was not the good coop that came out of the Black Lodge, as Hawk noted at the beginning of the episode. She takes her bottle of vodka, says cheers to the FBI. Unlike uh, <clears throat> Denise, Diane is not interested in using the full name of the Federal Bureau of Investigation uh, in this context. And, uh, and like you noted, uh, she's evasive uh, and doesn't even want to talk about what happened uh, with Cole. She says, we'll have a talk about that sometime when when Gordon asked her what happened. and then. As Bad Coop is brought back to his cell, he's got a message for the warden, Warden Murphy, uh, who wants, who he needs to talk to in his office about a strawberry. Uh, and that's the end of that scene. And, you know, 
it's interesting because even though the bad coop has this kind of flat effectless voice, it's different when he's in the interrogation right. room. Uh, it, it, it is markedly different. It is not the same when he's in the warden warden's office talking to him. Um, there's, there's some inflection to his voice where there's, you know, basically none in that interrogation room, which is, which is weird. Uh, you mean he's acting differently when he's in a glass box? Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. Now that, that is right. He's in a glass box. He's a little different. Yeah. And we, we cut from here back to twin peaks, uh, to the scene where I literally thought Andy was going to bite it. Um, he's at that meeting place. It's, it's, uh, four 30. Now he's the, the suspect or this guy he wants to question the farmer is 35 minutes late. He's, uh, you know, he, he's, he, he looks at his watch and, you know, gets into his car and drives away. Yeah. This, uh, and, and I understand your point about, uh, Andy maybe, uh, having things go sideways on him, but this really seems like the most competent Andy has been this season. Uh, and maybe since the end of season one when he shot Jacques Renault and saved Harry's life. Uh, I mean, and, and even the points where he's been a little bit dippy this season, you know, it, it is worth mentioning he was right about looking for clues that had to do with Native Americans. Uh, so there may be a little bit of a Dougie idiot savant quality to him. And the other thing about this scene is we see the the fog on the mountainside. We get some battlementy music. And that just underscores the extent to which this episode, more than any other from The Return, really looks, feels, and to a great extent sounds like original recipe Twin Peaks. Totally agree with that. Those shots of the fog on the mountainside are really majestic in the new, you know, uh, high-def widescreen format that we get, which is really... We go from here to the warden's office uh, where, where Coop's gambit has paid off. He's in there and he, he quickly informs him that the dog leg that he was carrying with him represents, in fact, the three missing dog legs, which he's distributed to people uh, with the information that the warden suspects that uh, Bad Coop has on him. He originally pulls a gun on him and has turned off the security cameras the warden has and it looks like he might shoot Cooper, but he ends up not doing that when he asks for proof and all Coop has to say is Joe McCluskey. And uh, that's it. At that point, the warden's ready to give him what he wants, which is Ray Monroe, a car, uh, 1am, a friend in the glove compartment, uh, and not to try anything, uh, remembering the dog legs, and then also mentions the late Mr. Strawberry, um, which, you know, I kind of hope we'd never find out about Mr. Strawberry. Um, but you know, it, it, I, I agree that there are definitely some mysteries that we, we don't need to find out about. Um, and I'm, even though we may propose theories about them one way or the other, I wouldn't want to suggest that I'm going to be uh, pissed off or upset if I have a theory about something and it turns out it's something that the, the show doesn't want to explore. There's going to be like a better call Saul style, like spinoff about Mr. Strawberry and like Joel McCluskey, uh, in a couple of years, JR, you might be wrong about this, but. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's look, true. This, I forgot this about the, the Star franchise. Wars no, universe, right? Not every stray reference needs an entire <laughs> tent pole of a franchise to explain it. I agree. I think it's all, you know, a MacGuffin and a Red Harry. We're not going to hear about this again, but it, it did get uh, Bad Coop out of Yankton, which moves us to Dougie Jones. Can <laughs> anything to say about the scene? That's right. That, I mean, that's. I mean, yeah. This is a. This is. This is great. This is just a really great scene. Um. We start out with the cowboy statue, and guess what? Dougie's not there. Uh, and instead, Janie E is staring at the statue. 
And then he's not coming down. She goes up and inside and, in, in, you know, we cut back to Dougie's office, which is a really nice office for a claims adjuster. I want to note with like a really nice embossed name on the door. And Tony's in there who wants to know about what Dougie and Bush know what we're discussing. And, uh, while well, Dougie is sort of, he's not paying attention to him at all. And he's, he was originally writing on his paper and now he's, he's pushing onto the blotter on his desk, um, scraping the same kind of pattern, uh, that he was making on the, uh, on the paper. And at this point, Janie E comes in and then our, uh, questionable coworker, uh, that is filled with sources of demerits in, in Ken's mind in the show enters to say, see some police officers are here to see Dougie. Uh, somehow that, uh, gives Tony a reason to leave the office, uh, to see that, that officers are coming. Uh, the cops come in and, uh, there, uh, there are three detectives who are all detective Fusco, according to the credits, T Fusco, Smiley Fusco and D Fusco, which is interesting given the fact that it's a Father's Day episode and that they're uh, these series of brothers and other brother connections. I think, Kyle, you had something. Yeah, about I mean, that. you've got the uh, when he comes in, uh, David Ketchner, uh, rep- uh, excuse me, uh, introduces them as the detectives, plural Fusco. Uh, so clearly they're brothers, or it's at least suggested. We later see uh, Walter uh, Olkowitz, uh, who, of course, played Jacques Renault, and now he's playing Jean-Michael Renault, uh, who presumably is another Renault brother. Uh, we, we have a conversation between Ben and Jerry Horn. We have a conversation between Frank and Harry Truman. And again, this is just uh, uh, further evidence for for my regrettable fear that uh, you know Richard Horn and uh, and and Diane Evans's son, if there is one, are are in fact uh, Doppel Cooper's uh, evil children. And well, it's interesting to note that I believe that the, there's a detective Fusco that shows up on some of Tony's crooked insurance files, as well as the Mitchum brothers. Uh, so I think we're probably going to learn more about that and Dougie's uh, boss actually says he wants to talk to him about those files, but ultimately says he, he can just go home. So what, what happens here is this interrogation. The, the cops want to talk to Dougie about his stolen car, uh, well, his missing car. And uh, there's a really hilarious process by which they ask questions of Dougie, and then Janie E. gets super aggressive and in their face and, like, turns every question back on them. She, You know, she's she's just, you know, asking them questions about why they haven't done their work. Uh, and when they, they say that the car was in an apparent explosion, uh, that, that was a car theft gang in the explosion, uh, you know, Janie's like, well, the case is closed. What, what, what do you need to do? They're, they're car thieves. That's why the car is gone. You know, you know case closed. It was a, it was a, let me get this straight. Scene. There were people going around stealing cars, playing games of football. <laughs> uh, so I have two points about this scene, if I can. One is that there's a part where, uh, Cooper Dougie's scribbles on his files have bled over into him trying to like push his pen through the blotter on his desk, which I bring up just because it's kind of reminiscent of Ike the Spike and the distressed owl card from Bad Cooper, like people trying to just dig a, a pointy implement into a surface. Uh, and the other thing is that I meant to mention last week when Dougie was going around in that lime green jacket, how much he reminded me of like punch drunk love and it's homage to Jacques Tati. 
And I think that the Dougie character is really similar to Monsieur Hulot, who is Tati's character that he plays in a whole bunch of films. And maybe Lynch is really into that, too. Certainly, Lynch is very popular among the French and knows his film history. So it wouldn't surprise me if he meant uh, a certain homage. And I just happened to look up Hulot on Wikipedia, of course. And here's how he's described by uh, the Wisdom of Crowds at Wikipedia. Hulot is recognized by his overcoat, pipe, and hat and his distinctive lurching walk. He is clumsy and somewhat naive of the evolving world around him, but still has a friendly, well-meaning, and good-natured persona. His escapades usually involve clashes with technology and the problems of living in an increasingly impersonal and gadgetized world. In Trafic, Hulot struggles valiantly against the perpetual roadblocks of cars, policemen, bureaucrats, and just people. That last bit being a quote. Uh, so I, I got a lot of that out of this scene where he's struggling valiantly against the roadblocks of cars, policemen, stealing cars. Yeah. Too many cars. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to say about this. I, I've given a lot of thought to the character of Dougie, as I uh, sure. expressed last week. Um, but I think as someone wrote on the Google Doc in all caps, still none of these people think Dougie's behavior yeah, that's is me. odd. I think one of my favorite <laughs> things about all these Dougie sequences, it, but but it's it's a sense that like he's only going, he's a little bit odder than he normally is, and and it made me think about, okay, we know that Dougie was manufactured for a purpose, uh, apparently to serve as some sort of you know surrogate replacement or whatever. If if the good coop tried to come out of the lodge. When was he manufactured? You know, what age was he when he was manufactured? Is Does Janie E. know this? You know, is, is she sort of a, a normal sort of non-golem, non-sort of manufactured person? Is Sonny, you know, just the spiritual wholeness of this relationship? I'm fascinated by, and I'm not sure if anyone has thought about this, but what would it be like to be married to someone who was essentially, as I said, some sort of like, spiritual golem or spiritual surrogate you know who was just meant to be you know and it it it, how does this affect sunny jim's uh intellectual and spiritual capacities moral capacities any thoughts am i the only one who's been thinking about this i think i probably am but still it was uh areas untouched in so far in this podcast so yeah no i mean i've thought about that too i i don't we janie e's motivations are fairly opaque uh we know that she drives a hard bargain we know that her attitude towards dougie really changed uh, when that money appeared uh where she went from you know cold hard anger to you know a, a lot more compassion uh but i i think she cares for dougie otherwise the you know well she she either cares for dougie or has enough self sense of her own self that she was um you know, deeply upset by the pictures of Dougie with Jade, which, you know, would be unusual behavior for a golem. Um, So I I don't think she was manufactured for a purpose. I don't know what she knows, but yeah, we don't know when Dougie was created. He could have been created 24 years ago. Uh, We we don't, we don't really know anything about their history. I do think that there is a connection between Dougie and Coop and Sonny Jim on some level. I, I don't know um, whether he's Dougie's biological son or adopted son, you know, the show hasn't addressed. And, and I do think it's an interesting question as to, you know, what, what's going on with that relationship. Well, Ken, you did this great job in the uh, show 
notes uh, on the sort of historical present uh, recounting of the scene in front of the the Lucky Seven Insurance Building. So I kind of want to hand it over to you. First of all, you guys, it is like the coolest scene. It is, <laughs> it is the coolest scene thus far in Twin Peaks. It is the most amazing shit. And uh, first, there's like the spike, and he's got a gun, and he's got this real determined fucking mug on, and he charges headlong at Dougie slash Kuplichet slash uh, whatever we're calling uh, that uh, Jacques Tati in- individual currently. And then good coop instincts kick in, and so now Dougie is like um, pushing Janie E out of harm's way and he's on ike the spike and he's putting a move on him that drives him to the ground and he's diverting the gun so the gun goes off into the pavement and he's karate chopping him hard in the fucking throat and there's this incredible foley noise when he karate chops him in the throat and janie e is like <laughs> squeeze his head off squeeze his head off. yeah so the fucking arm the evolved version of the arm sprouts up out of the pavement while janie e is pouncing on ike and choking and pulling at him and screaming get off him get off him and uh, yeah the evolved version of the arm is making that noise that uh, jr just uh, played or screeched or whatever um and uh coop is straight up two hand gripping the hand that uh, ike the spike has the gun in and uh ike the spike starts screeching a little bit and then the arm does the same thing again are you gonna make that noise again okay and then <laughs> coop just gives him another karate chop to the throat <laughs> with the same badass foley sound effect and it looks like it actually lands a little lower down like on his pecs but the foley sound effect is the same so i think we're meant to assume that he hits him right in the fucking throat again and then spike freaks out and like grabs at his throat and it's just like booking it towards anywhere but there and a whole crowd gathers and it is incredible and awesome at the end so what I want to know is, was that the evolved arm or like baby evolved arm or doppelganger evolved arm or baby doppelganger? It is way above my pay grade. I, ch- I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think the, you know, it's, it's a question. Is it is it the evolved arm or the or the uh, non-existence? Right. The one. Yeah. The one arm, that hurls it into non-existence. Arm. Yeah. It seems like it's, it's a totally legit yeah. question. But I, I think that we should change the title of this episode now. My vote now goes to Baby Doppelganger Evolved Arm. Yeah, yeah that's good, too. Uh, it's Yeah, it does seem like the ev- Doppelganger one, right? Because it's got the really high-pitched voice, and it's about chaos, you know, he's he's it's right. it's advocating something really awful. The the regular evolved arm seems to be more or less aligned with good. I don't know how to do the like D and D alignments, but seems seems to be more or less aligned with the forces of good. And the the doppelganger non existent one is is all about madness and chaos and. Uh, I mean, I, w- I was just also gonna say. I mean, it, you know, it's it's trying to save the good coop, you know, his life, and sort of uh, also get some good DNA evidence. You know, they track down like the spike. You know, using some good forensic science. Ah, yeah, I think I, I agree with with with, with that. I, I think it's more likely that it is the good evolved arm mm-hmm. uh, who is trying to help coop in this very critical moment. Uh, and that they can, and that there may be some quality to the guy's flesh, uh, that will make it, 
you know, that will change the game in terms of hunting down the bad people. Uh, I, I don't know. I, and, and, and that, that that's going to ultimately help Cooper. I mean, you know, squeeze his hand off is different than like, you know, rape your daughter. It's just, I mean, it's, it's on a different kind of level of the evil that people in the black lodge seem to be interested in do. So yeah, that that's my and take. It depends on how you interpret the statement, squeeze his hand off, squeeze his hand off of his wrist or squeeze his hand off of the gun. Obviously, Cooper squeezes his hand off of the gun, although there appears to be some flesh left on the gun butt after he does so. But, um, you know, again, we're talking about some version of an evolved arm, which was an evil arm that was taken off in order to prevent it from uh, making Mike continue to do evil deeds due to the tattoo that then evolved into something better. So literally disarming Mike, not just taking his gun away, but taking a part of his appendage off of him isn't something that, that there's not a precedent for. But it, it, in any event, you know, we've got two things that come out of this. Number one, Cooper, black suit and all, is going to be appearing on the news as a result of this. So Vegas casino owners, Twin Peaks law enforcement, FBI agents and criminals leaving prisons in South Dakota all of them might see this somewhere, uh, particularly with all the technology we have on the show now, that they might see a, a video of this on the internet and know to go look for him there. And then the second and more important thing is Dale Cooper is a coffee ninja. I mean, he the only thing missing from this scene is the David Lynch remix of ACDC's Black, Back in Black. And this is a giant step toward what I was getting at in my closing argument on last week's podcast. So at this point... The Doug fence rests its case. Okay. Douglas Jones moved, moved like, like a cobra. cobra. Moved like a cobra. Like a cobra. That's right. Now I want to know yeah, if he was the not the victim remix here. of ACDC's Back um, in Black actually exists. If that is out there somewhere, I really want it. It would be awesome. I mean, he already remixed him. Yeah. He already remixed what? American Woman? Whatever. One of the first right. two episodes. Right. That could definitely happen. I'd also like to point out that the little girl who said that I'm not sure if it, she was referring to Ike or she was referring to, to Dougie. So I, probably Ike said uh, that Ike smelled funny. Yes. Um, that is that actress. Uh, she plays Laura Dern's daughter in Big Little Lies, the recent HBO show. So that was a nice little bit of uh, typical Lynchian, you know, <laughs> casting. That's cool. Can, can I just point out how weird it is to talk to other people about this show? Not present company, very much excluded. Like I have a paralegal who's a casual viewer of this thing, who's watched all the episodes so far and, you know, probably watched the original series back in the day. At least I, I reckon that he did if he stuck around this long. And he was asking me like, what do you think of like the egg tree thing? And I was like, oh, you mean, you mean the evolved version of the arm? And he was like, the what? <laughs> it's, it's very odd just having that conversation. Like no very, very few people are going to understand us saying, uh, do, is it the evolved version of the arm or is it the doppelganger evolved version of the arm? Like, you know, like. <laughs> it's, but it's like, it's like inviting people to your wedding. You can invite 30 people to your wedding. You can invite 200 people to your wedding, or you can invite 9,000. Because if you expand the list from 200 to second cousins or members of somebody's Sunday school class, you got to invite all of them. And it's that way. If somebody asks you to explain Twin Peaks, you can either give them a single sentence explanation or a 12 hour explanation. There's no 20 minute synopsis of Twin Peaks. No. This is a good time to know, probably that all of the viewers, we, all of the listeners that we got via the Balthazar Getty retweet are long gone. There's no way we have any more of them. 
Oh, well, they were gone. Uh, they were they were they were gone over an hour ago. Um, yeah. In, in the interest of time, I'm just going to say, okay, there's a scene at the Great Northern. Uh, the the keys are back. Ben has them. There's a weird humming sound. Maybe it's the keys. Maybe it's a lamp. Maybe it's uh, Josie in the woods somewhere. There's some sexual tension between Ben and Ashley Judd's character, but uh, Ben appears. You know, he doesn't make a play. Uh, it almost looks like Ashley Judd wants him to. Uh, but, you know, they go home and it turns out she's taking care of a husband with cancer and is he's suspicious of her. And he's you know, she doesn't want him to fuck up this job for him now that she's got to dedicate her life to taking care of uh, him yeah, who's I, sick with you know cancer or something. Yeah, I have nothing to say about the Ashley Judd at home scene, but just a couple of points from the Great Northern. Uh, Kyle obviously called it that the key was going to be significant. I mean, we all knew the key was going to be significant, but we're well on our way to Kyle was right corner with the thing arriving and Ben Horn saying, we haven't had, we've used keyless entry for the last 20 years. Uh, so that was great. And it got me thinking about, of course, bills the FBI might have been racking up for this room per Kyle's earlier rant. And uh, I think, Kyle, you also wanted to point something out about the crevices Audrey Horn used to hide. Yeah, that that was what I took away from it going into the wall and then sort of fading to black is 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 that the wall that Audrey used to sneak into so that she could uh, look in on her father's conversations and listen in on, you know, watch his meetings that that really was sort of Lynch's meta way of of riffing on the idea of the essentially voyeuristic nature of television. I don't know if it's the same wall or not, but that's what I thought of. No one's mentioned the hum. What do you guys think about the hum? I don't know. I, I think it could be the keys. It could be Josie in the wood. I mentioned that. I don't know. I love this scene. And there is a weird phenomenon called the hum or the worldwide hum, sometimes associated with certain localities, the Bristol hum or the Taos hum or some of the other, uh, you know, localities which it's been situated around. But sometimes, you know, it, it's only certain people can hear it. It drives certain people kind of crazy. I'm not sure this is quite um, the same thing. But I will say that this kind of persistent low frequency sound sometimes uh, in some of the places where the hum has been located has been described as a distant diesel engine idling. I I found that in several of my uh, places researching the hum. But I think here that it started when the key arrived uh, and I think it's not going to end until some certain action or some other kind of, you know, something in in room 315 is is located, um, you know, in the same way that Audrey's... uh, Note to Agent Cooper saying, rescue me from one-eyed Jacks laid <laughs> under his bed for several episodes before it was discovered. I feel like something of, uh, uh, along the same lines, what will happen and, and the hum will, will persistently occur until some event happens connected to the key in room 315. That's it. That That's hum analysis reminds me of something you would get on Ancient Aliens and therefore I love it. And I think we should start Jeff's epiphenomenology corner. Yes, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it was aliens, but yeah, <laughs> it was it aliens. Was aliens. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we we cut now to the roadhouse yeah. where an alien is sweeping up the floor for about five minutes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny. Ken, I was talking to a paralegal in my office about the show who had never seen it. And I was talking about the difference that David Lynch is in charge. I was like, yeah, there's a scene this week where this guy was just sweeping the floor for five minutes. That's it. That's all that's happening. 
<laughs> isn't that great? I can't, isn't this a great show? Can't, doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm spending all this time doing a podcast about the show where somebody sleeps the floor for five minutes. Yeah. So, I mean, I, obviously this is everybody's favorite scene in the entire episode, right? We all, we all love this the most and we think it's spectacular. Sure. Yes. Certainly it was the point at which uh, my wife uh, Definitely. looked at me with very accusing Tory eyes. Uh, but, but the joke is on her because she's the theater expert and ha- uh, the masters in theater haver of our household uh, and former theater director of our household. And she did not pick up that this is actually a theater reference, uh, that uh, there's five minutes of sweeping or at least long segments of sweeping in between scenes in the play The Flick by Annie Baker. So another Annie B for you, Kyle, uh, which won the Pulitzer Prize and uh, was actually, I mean, probably a favorite of David Lynch's. But Annie Baker also worked on Louis C.K.'s barroom drama Horace and Pete. And so did David Lynch. David Lynch has an acting role in Horace and Pete. So it makes sense to me that Lynch would be familiar with Annie Baker, that he'd be familiar with Annie Baker through Horace and Pete, if not anything else, and that he'd want to pay homage to her. So uh, I liked the scene fine when it gave me a break from rapidly typing through the show notes uh, to to catch my breath and do some RSI exercises. But I liked it even more when I learned about the um, uh, resonance between it and the Pulitzer Prize winning play and the Louis C program. And since this is a bar room, and since I didn't have anything interesting to say about Diane's mini bottles, I will just say this has been Ken's Beverage Corner. I just like to say my wife really enjoyed the sweeping scene, but was a little frustrated that it ended just before this guy was able to finish up sweeping. Yeah. It didn't quite give you the complete <laughs> zen satisfaction of watching. I'm being, I'm being serious. She really enjoyed this scene. Uh, and it, it reminded me too of just like, you know, davidlynch.com, how much time he devoted to, you know, uh, weather, uh, reports every day from LA videos on how to make quinoa, you know, his interest in, in process. And it also, I think all those of us who are thought this was going to lead into like an instrumental, you know, a musical scene, you know, and be the typical credits. He psyched us out. I just want to say, I don't think that we're going to see any time in season three. We're going to get to the end of episode 18, and that guy's not going to be done sweeping the floor. I, I, I don't think he's going to come back around, and y- your wife's not going to get closure on the guy sweeping up the roadhouse. Not going to happen. Probably true. That is probably true. So the incidental thing that happens in this scene is that uh, the a, a, a Renault relative uh, gets the call uh, he looks exactly like Jacques Renault. Who is it? Like Jean? Jean Michael. Jean Michel. Jean Michel. Jean Michel. Renault picks up the phone, and there's a conversation that apparently the Roadhouse is still in the business of sending high school prostitutes out for business, and uh, the the caller uh, has upset about the fact that they got he got two instead of one, uh, and that there's something about their age, you know, being underage. Um, you know, the Renault family is clearly, uh, really on the up and up in terms of their business opportunities, uh, these days. Um, this is because they are inbred with owls, as the, um, access guide has told us. Um, yeah. And so, uh, Cooper is out. He, he comes out of, uh, 
cell number 27. Kyle, you had a thought about uh, that? Yeah, just the uh, the fact that it's cell 27 because, um, you know, we do have a little bit of a connection with something that ties in uh, to this episode. Episode number 27 of Twin Peaks, which was near the end of season two, is entitled The Path to the Black Lodge. And, and certainly we've got some resonance on people being on the path to or hopefully from the Black Lodge. Now, Ken is out. He's trying to get back in. Do you guys see uh, Ken? He just sent me a message. He was at a, a hotel in Buenos Aires covered scorch marks, but <laughs> shit. Yeah. Ken, are you, you're back with us? Yeah, I'm back. All right. Yay. Yay. Right. Ken's cool. back. Great. All right. All right. So does anything anybody else wants to say about the uh, Coop escaping the prison? He's out. Only thing I'd add is he does casually tell Ray to drive, and the implication on the friend in the glove compartment is that it's a gun. Uh, and so I think he wants to be able to off Ray if he wants because he doesn't need things. Uh, or it could just be the sauce Bernays response because the last time he drove a car, he puked up a lot of Garmin Bosia, and so he probably doesn't want to drive again. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, that would be a, a funky smell. <laughs> be smelling, yeah. Uh, in his... Uh, Psychosis. That's why he requested a cheat, a cheat, the cheap rental, right? Because he knows what's so going to happen. There's a there. scene. <laughs> there's a scene. That's right. That's right. Um, there's a scene of trees and the Twin Peaks at night. We move to the final scene in uh, the Double R Diner. It's a busy night. Most of the seats are full. Uh, apparently, uh, the the only thing that Norma does now right. is paperwork. Because uh, we had like every single scene, she's sitting there filling out bills, writing checks. Uh, and so she's doing that. And uh, somebody runs in to shout if anybody's seen Billy, runs out again. And Norma's back to doing her books, and there's some cuts back and forth. Uh, what's crazy about this scene, and we didn't really recognize it the first time we watched it, is that there was – before the guy comes in to say – Where's Billy? Has anybody seen Billy? Uh, there's one set of patrons at the diner. And then when they cut back to the patrons in the diner uh, and the view from the left, viewing it from the back of the diner towards the front door, it's a completely different set of people. And Heidi, who had been behind the bar, is er, behind the, the bar area of the restaurant, is now out on the floor. Uh, and and everybody, it's like a different person wearing different clothing in a different chair on the other side of the, of the, of the scene, which I didn't catch. Somebody... You know, some various people on the internet, you know, figured it out and posted it and I saw it and that's how I found out about it. Uh, but it was crazy. It made me think about the fact what I, I think I mentioned before this idea of Twin Peaks turning into Deer Meadow and the idea of the town of Twin Peaks is like kind of a character in the show, the same way that in The Shining, the hotel, the Overlook Hotel is a character in the, in the narrative. And it made me wonder, like, what kind of weird displacement is going on here uh, in Twin Peaks? We take so much about the sort of ordinary lives of people in Twin Peaks for granted. And now this one thing has happened and everybody's flipped around. What, what does it mean? I, I don't I really don't know. Um, as for the person that Billy is talking about, um, my theory is that it's he's talking about Bill Hastings. Yeah, could be. I was also going to. I also apparently I thought it was Billy at first, you know, that some anyone seen Billy, but I, I 
did read somewhere that the closed captions for the episode said, uh, is anyone saying Bing? Yeah. And there's, as you said, there's no Billy in the credits. Riley Lynch, David Lynch's son, is uh, credited as Bing in this episode. And I think, uh, you know, he played in, I'm not sure what episode that was, three or four, the band Trouble. Um, so I don't know what to make of that, but so that there was no Billy in the credits. There was a Bing. And the closed captions apparently said Bing instead of Billy, although I, as you did, heard Billy. Yeah, we don't, I don't think we see him in this episode. He's, he, he's in the right. credits. Uh, but yeah, we, I don't know that we've seen him on screen except when he was on stage with his is band. It, is it possible he's the guy who comes in and says, has anyone seen Billy or Bing? Do we have any idea who that guy is? Could be. Like he's on yeah. PCP or something? <laughs> or, you know, he's looking for his duplicate or yeah, doppelganger since there's an awful lot of those. Right. Yeah, right. yeah that would make sense. He lost his shot. I was just hoping, I guess, with that reveal that we're swapping out all these patrons after Has Anybody Seen Bing, that it was going to be all of the patrons in different clothing and from a different era, like time displaced, as though we were now making a jump forward or a jump backward in time to explore some other uh, element of this mystery. But that doesn't appear to be what's going on. Or maybe we did. It's just like an hour and a half, though. It's like 40 years. <laughs> right, right. No significant change. It's just 90 minutes. Yeah, but he would have yeah. just conveyed that by showing sweeping for an hour and a half. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't <laughs> need to jump. <laughs> uh, just, just you wait till the end of episode eight. Yeah. So, Jared, right. do you want to talk about Santo and Johnny? Right. Who's going to talk about Santo and Johnny? No, no. I mean, I just, I, I really, I think that you, you can make the argument that Santo and Johnny's song Sleepwalk is the greatest song of the entire 20th century. I wanted to point out that the B-side of the original Santo and Johnny Sleepwalk single is another instrumental song. I think all their songs are instrumental, called All Night Diner, a song that I bet is on the Double R jukebox, and I bet occasionally All Night Diner uh, might get some airplay. That's all I have to say. Nice. That does seem like the sort of, you know, weird, deep, you know, deep fact that, like, you know, was, was in the back of, of uh, either Mark Frost or David Lynch's brain and probably had something to do with, you know, whether uh, subconsciously or not, why they chose that song for this thing. Who knows? Yeah, I, I totally buy that. And and in addition to Sleepwalk, you get, as, as the credits near the end, you get a little bit of that ominous hum just sort of creeping up a little bit. It, it looks like this nice homey scene, but it, it ends on that ominous note like we get at the end of so many other scenes. And the only thing that I would say about not noticing the patrons, because I didn't notice it either, uh, is that apparently when we see Machen Amick in Shelley's waitress uniform, I'm way, way, way too focused on her because I didn't notice that every other person in the scene was completely different except her. Yeah. Well, guys, we have uh, had a really long episode. It's been a lot of fun. I'm going to spend the next month <laughs> editing it down to a reasonable length. Can I want me to give you one, one, one final thing to work with, JR? I was just going to say, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of David Lynch, Mark Frost, and how in some of the earlier episodes we felt like we didn't really, you know, see Frost, uh, hear evidence of Frost. This episode felt very frosty, um, and it was episode seven of the new Twin Peaks. And in some ways, in terms of, you know, its uh, willingness to sort of, uh, you know, um, solve certain plot lines while also opening other ones, it brought to mind for me uh i think the only episode written and directed by mark frost in the original run of twin peaks episode seven the season finale of episode one um there was that kind of narrative thrust narrative kind of drive 
Um, and then, like I said, the willingness to kind of, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I guess both simultaneously close and open certain narrative threads. And especially I think because of the appearance, um, of Warren Frost, uh, Mark Frost's dad, uh, is Doc Hayward. I felt this was kind of the most, uh, as I said, frosty, frosty an episode yet. That's all I got to say about that. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's inter- interesting uh, how Josie could definitely get the jump on Cooper, whereas Ike the Spike had no chance. And in this episode, up that episode, in this episode, Cooper resisted being shot, and right. he did not was not able to resist being shot at the end of uh, season one, episode seven. That's all I got. Exactly. Okay, I guess we're gonna go out on that. Thanks, everybody, and we will uh, be back for episode eight. Thanks. Mm-hmm.